Hello, I'm Tom Merritt. This is episode 178 of Sword and Laser. Second episode of the week. We don't always do this. And it's just me today. Veronica's not here. Of course, Sword and Laser is our online book club. If you're just running across us, swordandlaser.com is the place to get all the things we normally do. And one of the things we do is get to go to conferences. Now, Veronica was on vacation at the time, but I was able to go to Baycon. They were very nice to invite me to be the Toastmaster, uh, which did not involve toast in any way, but did involve a lot of fun, meeting a lot of great people, having a lot of wonderful conversations. And one of the best conversations I had was with their guest of honor for Baycon, Mr. David Weber, the creator, among many things, of the Honor Harrington character, and of course the honor verse that surrounds her. I got a chance to sit down for quite a long time. It's a, it's a little over an hour to talk to David, who has a lot to say, and he pokes fun at himself about that sometimes. But let me tell you, he's an interesting guy to listen to, so I'm glad he has a lot to say. So this is a recording of our Guest of Honor interview from BayCon 2014 in Santa Clara, California, with David Weber. Hope you enjoy it. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to our guest of honor interview. I'm Tom Merritt, and uh, I will be talking with our guest of honor, Mr. David Weber. Uh, David published his first book. David published his first book in 1989. He is the writer of the Safehold series, the War God series, and of course the creator of the Honorverse in which lives Honor Harrington. I will not give her a title in case I'm spoiling anything for anyone. Uh, a small subdiscipline of math, I believe, may have been created around trying to count his works, uh, depending on how you count novellas, collaborations, etc. What, what count do you, do you give these days? An indefinite one. That's good. I, the, the truth is that I genuinely don't remember. <laughs> uh, and you get into, okay, well, do I count the collaborations as novels? Okay, and ooh, what do I do with the anthologies? And wait, wait, okay, now that over there was, let's see, that's, uh, th- those two volumes are the Starfire novels. Okay, they don't count. We already did that. <laughs> so it, it does, I, seriously, you know, it's just, I'm so busy with what I'm thinking about that I'm doing next that I'm not even always clear on what the release schedule is. People say, when's the next book coming out? And I go, wait, um, um, soon. August, I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's that kind of a, uh, I do um, roughly a million and a half words a year. Wow. That is insane. Um, and they don't all wind up in the novels sure. or whatnot. Um, a lot of them wind up in uh, little essay reminders that I do myself uh, about a point that I need to bear in mind and where I'm changing course and <laughs> don't forget you're changing course here, Jack, you know. Um, so I think right this minute we're around 45 or 50 solo titles and then you got all the rest of the stuff yeah. thrown in. My estimate was around 50 for solo titles. That, yeah. sound, that sounds about, about right. Uh, now, you went to graduate school in history, but I also read you were discouraged in pursuing that as an academic field because of its diminished prospects. How do you jump from that to what many people <laughs> consider the diminished prospects of becoming a writer, which you've, you've overcome? But Well, okay. Um, I started writing in the fifth grade. Okay. 
Um, and then in the sixth grade, my friend Terry Maurer and I wrote this incredibly long novel, which I actually found about 10,000 words of the other day and promptly burned. Um, <laughs> it was a first-person novel in which David and Terry saved the world. Nobody had invented computers yet, and you could tell where the typewriter ribbon started running out because I shifted to red until it died and then went back to black. I mean, you know, that kind of project. Um, I supported myself as a writer from the time I was 17. Um, I am one of the world's last trained linotype operators. When Y2K came along, I thought I saw a career opportunity You're looming cheering. on the horizon once more, you know, but no. Um, I did, I've done paste-up art. Those of you living in a computer age may not even know what paste-up art was, okay? Um, I've, it's, it's kind of like real-life cut and paste. Yeah. It's where it comes from. Yeah. I've done... Um, uh, I, I ran my own small advertising agency for... Um, Four years. Do you watch Mad Men? No, I do not. Well, I don't watch a whole lot of TV because I write a million and a half words a year. Um, I don't get to see many movies because I write a million and a half words a year. Oh, and I have three children who like like to see me occasionally. And yet you still write a million and a half words a year. That's impressive. Yes, I do. I send them off to school. I go out. I used to write, do almost all my writing about 3 o'clock in the morning because the phone doesn't ring. Okay. Uh, the delivery man doesn't turn up. Somebody doesn't come in and say, honey, I really hate to interrupt you, but we have to deal with this. It'd be absolutely right. You understand that we have to. But see, if I'm not there, then it doesn't happen. You know? um, and uh, the problem is that uh, it was easier to operate on five and a half hours of sleep a night when I was 35 than it is when I'll be 62 in October. So I'm having to sort of slide my schedule uh, back around. Um, but uh, the, uh, what happened was that Steve White and I started exchanging short stories. Well, actually, no, backtrack. I had written and submitted a fantasy novel, which was rejected uh, because it did not have a credible villain. Now, the villainess, let's see, she murdered her father and her older sister to inherit the title. She saved her, she's a, she's a black sorceress. Uh, she saved her sister's blood uh, after she drained the body because it's useful in some of the spells she's casting. She has a rock garden, which is where the people she really doesn't like, she turns into statues, which can still feel and so forth. She leaves them out there in the winter. Uh, and when she's feeling especially unhappy, she or just needs to cheer up, she goes out and builds bonfires around them and listens to their mental screams, you know. Uh, she I'm could, scared. She convinces the crown princess that she's her best friend in all the world, then murders the king so that she's able to you know, usurp the throne. And she hires the Assassin's Guild to kill the last white wizard in the world. Um, and not a credible villain. And I'm like, the only thing I could figure out was that when the time came for her to face the music, she didn't cringe, she didn't whimper. She said, okay, you know, I took my shot. <laughs> you know, here it is. But anyway, so that had been, was in submission. And I was working on the game Starfire with uh, Task Force Games. And uh, I always did a, uh, a short story when I started work on a game project, especially one that was going to be tied together by scenarios. And I'd sent that short story off to Steve, uh, 
that I I had met when he kept sending uh, letters to Task Force about a problem with the rules in a game that I had done. I had appendicitis and walked around for 10 days with a ruptured appendix. Um, and therefore, I spent some time as the guest of my local hospital. Um, and um, the playtest period on the game that I had done came up while I was hospitalized. I said, oh, don't worry, we'll do it. You know, I said, okay. And there were two places where I hadn't been able to decide how I wanted to handle the mechanics. They left both of them in. Oh, they left both alternatives. Both alternatives well, yeah, that in. That is a problem, isn't it? That is a problem. And Steve kept trying, sending them letters trying to get them straightened out, and they didn't answer them, and they didn't answer them, and they didn't answer them. Steve gives curmudgeons a bad name, okay? Um, and he finally got to the point of sending them a letter that says, if all you can do is produce hack games, why don't you? And that was the one they finally forwarded to me. And so I sent a letter to him, since I, after all, was a South Carolina boy, that said, Sir, name your seconds. My friends shall call upon them on Tuesday next. I trust pistols will be satisfactory. And it was the beginning of a friendship. Uh, <laughs> but I sent him the short story. He sent, he sent one back, and I sent one back. And it, this is all pre-internet. Okay? And interestingly enough, it took three days for a letter from me to get to Charlottesville, Virginia. And it took 11 days for a letter from Charlottesville, Virginia to get to Greenville, South Carolina, persistently through this entire project. So we're, and he's writing his longhand, okay? I'm at least typing mine, you know, sending them back and forth. And I realized that what we were doing was we were building a novel out of the war that I had built as the background for this, you know. And that became Insurrection, which we submitted to. It originally had 285,000 words in it, which I thought would probably be a little bit long for a first submission. So I took um, 100 took 80,000 words out, and it was much shorter then uh, compared to the book that ate Brooklyn. Uh, for a first novel, still a little long, only 100,000 words or so long, uh, submitted it to Avon Books, and John Douglas was the senior editor at Avon at that point, and he really liked it, and we spent a year trying to get it down to a length the front office would let him buy. And we finally got it down like 140,000 words. And he said to us, the suits won't let me buy it, not for a first novel. And he said, and there's nothing else you can take out. Uh, and he said, you know, every editor in, in the shop has read it. We all love it, and they won't let us buy it. Well, so, good for him for not pushing you to take something important out. Oh, absolutely. Well, it gets better because he said, what you need to do is, I hate to ask you to do this when we spent a year working with, you've spent a year working with, and you've done what we asked you to do, you know, all the way through. He said, but I need you to withdraw it, and I want you to submit it to some place that does more military-themed science fiction than Avon did at that time. And I want you to tell them that the only reason I didn't buy it was that the front office wouldn't let me, and I want you to tell them to call me so I can tell them that myself. Now, as rejection notices go, you know, it doesn't get a whole lot better than that. So I sent it to uh, Bain Books, which had only been in existence at that point for about a year. And about uh, 10 days later, I get this phone call, and this voice on the other line says, Hi, my name is Tony Weisskopf. I'm with Bain Books, and I'd like to make an offer on your book. I said, Okay. And she said, Don't you want to know how much? I said, No. <laughs> and she said, Really? And I said, Really? Um, and that was how the first book was sold. Um, and I had sold Bain three more before 
before Insurrection was published. Okay, one of the things that made it possible uh, for me to transition to full-time writing. First, I was running my own ad agency, and I might as well starve being a writer as running my own ad agency. Um, but another factor of it was that Jim Bain probably, probably was the best editor, publisher that I have ever worked with or heard of when it came to bringing a new author along. Okay? He wrote contracts which were low advance numbers for the eventual sales on the books to me at a time when I needed those advance payments if I was going to support myself while I wrote. And Insurrection did something very rare. Um, it earned out against the advance in the first royalty period. And um, every single Honor Harrington novel ever written has earned out against its advance in the first royalty period. And you can argue, well, that means the advance is too low. Okay. In a lot of ways, it doesn't really matter whether you get the cash on the front end or the back end. And by accepting a lower advance on the front end, you spread the pool of money they can use for advances for everybody over more people. Um, I remember Stephen King, when he got his first in gigantic contract, it was, a, uh, I think, a 10-book contract with a book to be delivered every year, and they were going to pay him a million-dollar advance on each book. Okay, and he said, "Hell no," <laughs> because it's like, okay, here's the signing payment. It's like it was like thirty percent of the total contract. So you're looking at, you know, it's a ten million dollar advance, and they want to pay him thirty percent of that in one check. And he says, he says, okay, first of all, this is really, really going to blow my cash flow, you know, my accountants. But he said, secondly, use some of that money to pay advances to people you might not have been able to buy otherwise. All right, and other authors remember would you do something like that because the truth is that about 10% of all published writers earn about 90% of all income earned by published writers and the other 90% of the writers divide the other 10% of the income I mean that's the way that it works and I have been very fortunate um, I mean I work my butt off too but you know but I've been very fortunate in in being one of those people who is able to support himself off off the top of the off the, you know off of off of his writing and if and if you if you get a bigger advance theoretically it's going to take longer to earn it out yeah exactly most exactly. of the time right? oh, okay tour on the safe hold books not going into any you know hard numbers right here but the tour advances are considerably larger than the advances that I get on the Honor Harrington books. Uh, and the Safehold books have done well. I think uh, all of them have made it to the New York Times extended list, at least. And I think that, like, there's seven of them out now. And of the seven that are out, I think four, or e either four or five, have made it into the top ten on the New York Times. So they've done well. Um, but none of them yet has fully earned out against the advance. Okay, um, 
So it's, it, there is, there's an apples and orange thing. Now, they don't have to run out against the advanced retort to be making quite a bit of money off of them. Okay, obviously, or else Tor would say, eh, Dave, you know, we know you like that series, but... Um, but it, it, the, before you become a published writer, understanding the mechanics of how it works as a business, not as, as a vocation, not an avocation, Okay, you kind of go like, "Wow, I never knew that. That's so cool!" In a sort of ugh kind of way, you know. Um, and of course, with eBooks and uh, on-demand publishing and so forth, it's all changing again. I did. <laughs> okay, um, I did Insurrection on an Osborne portable computer. Those of you who either have no hair or have white hair, yes, or some of us have both, okay. Um, the Osborne was the size of a big portable sewing machine. And you took the keyboard off and laid it flat, and then you kind of oomphed the case up onto it so you had Because it was portable. It. Oh, yeah. Uh, the display, and this is not an exaggeration. You can ask anybody out there who actually worked with it. The display was the size of a 3 by 5 index card. And you had two 92K single-side, single-density floppy drives. And one of them had to have all the operating software on it. So you couldn't even punch a hole in your drive and get dual density. Actually, no, you could because the drives were more capable than the... <laughs> okay. Uh, and so I was using both sides of the floppy disks. And so you got 92K capacity on the disk... But I was using WordStar, CPM WordStar, and you couldn't disable the backup function. So the max you could actually get on a disk was 45K. And I had a 285,000-word novel. Okay, now you could get 90K on a disk because you used both sides, okay? But I had a stack of floppies this high. Okay, that's like one app for those who don't understand. Maybe le maybe less. Well, and and you're sitting here, and and y everything had to go hard copy in submission, and at that point, actually, the the uh, under union rules, everything had to be re-keyboarded. So even if you could have even if you could have sent it electronically, it all had to be re-keyboarded anyway. And I remember when I got my first computer with a hard drive. It had. It had a four meg hard drive. And I'm like, I will never fill this puppy up. There is no way in the world that I will fill this puppy up. Um, and, and then, like, ooh, internet, shiny, you know. Um, and my, my first modem was... It was the dial-up modem, you know, kind of thing. Cradle, yeah. Oh, yeah, and I quickly said, ooh, i got to do better than this. Um, but I remember, I think it was um, I think it was Path of the Fury was the first book where they said, go ahead and send us a floppy along with it. And I was like, wow, you know. And now it's like, okay, I'm done. Zip, zap, okay, it's delivered, <laughs> you know. I'm what like, do you use now? What, what do you write on now? Because um, George R. R. Martin recently made a bunch of headlines because he admitted he still uses WordStar. I use Word now. Um, I, I, I loved WordStar. There were things... What killed WordStar was MS-DOS, first of all. And the second thing that did it in was, uh, was WSGI. 
what you see is what you get displays. Because when they moved to Whiskey, they had to use basically the same shelves that WordPerfect and, and, and Word were using. And it was more complicated. They had page frames and all kinds of stuff that you had to work with. You could do things with it that you couldn't do with Word or WordPerfect at that point. But it really, much as I hated to admit it, it wasn't worth the hassle. So I use Word and uh, Dragon Naturally Speaking. Um, because 15 years ago, I reduced my right wrist to gravel, um, 57 pieces. And when they put it back together, they had one left over. It was only small, but they were like, oh, I keep it. Yeah, I actually did have it for a long time in a little jar, you know. Uh, but I have uh, two plates and 12 screws and six pieces of wire and bone spurs and early onset. Is that just from writing? No, that's from falling, going out about four feet and down about six feet yeah, and catching okay. all my weight on one hand. Um, yes, I, we, I, we, <laughs> we took it over. I got up. I rolled around on the ground and said a few words that Methodist lay speakers are not supposed to know. Um, but we weren't always Methodist lay speakers. Uh, and I got back up and I opened the front door and I call up to the top of the stairs, Sharon. And she's like, what? And I said, I think I broke my wrist. And my loving spouse, we'd been married for about 18 months at the time, looks down at me and says, you better be lying. Because <laughs> I was about, I was about um, a third of the way through a book, okay? Um, and so we took me over to the hospital, and the radiologist x-rayed the wrists, and they came back, and they said, how would you say this happened? And I said, oh, I was on icy steps. And I, said, oh, and I said, and something in my wrist went pop. And they said, oh, we know it did. And I said, does that mean it's broken? And I said, well, you know, we can't diagnose. We're just the radiologist. But, oh, we know you did. Um, and uh, so they, so Jim Bain, I, I called Jim and I said, Jim, I said, yeah, I got some bad news. And he said, what? And I said, my wrist is broken uh, and they're going to put it in a cast for a few weeks and see if it kind of goes back where it needs to be, but they don't think it's going to, in which case they're going to have to do surgical reconstruction. It's going to be another eight weeks you know, before I can use the hand. And he's like, where are you on the book? <laughs> and I said, so, so sorry to hear that. How's the book? <laughs> and I said, I said, not done. <laughs> and he said, well, have you ever thought about using, you know, voice-activated software? And I said, yes. And I decided not to do it. He said, if I bought it, would you try it? <laughs> and I said, okay. So like four or five days later, uh, Dragon version 2.3 arrived. And I have written with Dragon ever since. I'm now on version 12.6 or something. Do you think that's changed anything about how you write? I really don't think so. Most people can't tell the point at which I shifted from one to the other. I, it took me a while to realize that the way that I had always written was I'd actually been telling the story to somebody who was just on the other side of the display or whatever. Uh, and I'd simply, it was kind of like using ASL, okay? Uh, I was using my fingers on the keyboard to tell the story rather than actually talking to them. And what changed the most was that the speed at which I composed sentences was the speed at which I typed. So it was a simultaneous process. Okay. When you use voice-activated software, you can dictate it 250 words a minute. All right. Well, before I broke my wrist, and even today, as long as the wrist is working properly, um, I can type about 90 words a minute clean, 
getting 115, 120. If I'm not too worried about the. Typos. No wonder Bain wanted to buy you that song. <laughs> I think. Well, nobody I know writes at 250 words a minute. Okay, uh, if they could, it would be like, wow, man. Well, some of the guys who did the pulps in the 40s might have, and they didn't have software like that. Um, but. What happens is that you spend more time framing a phrase or a sentence before you actually put it down, because the soft you can use you can use Dragon you can dictate it to it in two ways you can dictate to it in complete phrases because it likes the complete phrase so that it can interpret what it is you're trying to say, or you can dictate one word at a time because then it has more clarity in understanding what you just said. <laughs> okay, um, And so you get more into the habit of sitting back and thinking for a few seconds before you give it the sentence or whatever. And that's really the only big change in the way that I compose what I'm writing. Now, does it learn? I mean, because when you're writing science fiction, you're using non-standard words like manticorin navy. Manticorin. Manticorin navy. Well, the, 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 the mispronunciation in the Audible books is my fault. Oh, okay. That's where I took it from. Yes. Um, Allison sent me an email before she started working on the books. It was, and we did, oh, God. Uh, we talked about uh, what diet, you know, what accent the various planets have. We went through a whole list of names on how do you pronounce this one, how do you do the other. And we got to Manticorin, and she said, now is it Manticorin or Manticorin, spelled out. And I clicked the wrong one. I told oh. her the wrong one. And I was really, when I realized that it was being mispronounced, I was like, oh, I know I told her how to pronounce. And I went back and I found the email. And sure enough, I had told her Manticorin. And I posted to that effect on Bain's Bar and a couple other places. I said, guys, it's supposed to be Manticorin, but I know exactly why she's doing it. And I got an email from her. She said, that's so sweet. Most authors would never have admitted that. <laughs> that is, for sure, definitely. But when you type Manticorin... Does, yes. it le does it learn? Does it create a dictionary like that? Uh, you have to train it on new words. Um, and the problem is, yes, it does learn. It learns the good things and the bad things. So if you tell it, yes, W-E can be pronounced way. I have no idea when, where, and how I did that, but clearly I did because it thinks that W-E is way. It also thinks W-A-Y is way and W-E-I-G-H is way. And normally it will, like, pull pretty much from context, which, I mean, if you say, you know, he weighed the moment, okay, it's pretty sure you didn't mean W-A-Y-E-D or something like that. Uh, but it doesn't forget anything that it ever learns and it will do strange and bizarre things to you upon occasion. Um, I use the uh, advanced uh, legal solutions version of it. And the reason that I do is because it allows me to build separate vocabularies for each literary universe. And the reason you have to do that is because it cycles words in and out of memory by frequency of use. So if you don't use the terminology for the honorverse for three months while you're working on a Bazell novel and then you're going to do one in uh, the Safehold series, 
you have to you'd have to recycle all of the honorverse specialized words back in whereas if you keep a separate vocabulary and you only work in the honorverse in this one and you only work in safe hold in this one that problem doesn't arise um, one good thing about it is that once it learns a word, it always spells it the same way. So you don't have to worry about transposed characters or something like that, which is cool. And I do believe that it has um, increased my, my productivity. Now, there are some problems that I'm working on right now with the person who's going to be taking over our IT support. Um, one big problem is that it cycles whatever document you're working on into and out of active memory. Okay? So if I'm, and if you get more than 10,000 words in a document, it starts slowing down. So I, do, I work in chapters that I then paste into a master document. Okay, so I'm sitting here, I got 180,000 words in this document, and I was like, oh, damn, I can't remember what I did. I better go check. So I open the document and I go searching. And I sit there and go, <laughs> while I wait for it to take the 5,000-word chapter that it was using out of active memory and load this damn, you know, monster in. And then I have to go through the reverse process when I go back to the working chapter. So in a few weeks now, what's going to happen is I'm going to have two separate towers working through the same monitor, the same keyboard, the same mouse that I can flip back and forth through. And I will keep... The, the, the rough draft, the, the cumulative file, open on this computer where Dragon doesn't even know it's there, okay? And if I need to look something up, I can flip back and forth in it without having to do that. And I think that's no, going to help a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Good solution. I asked uh, our Sword and Laser audience uh, from the podcast if they had some questions for you, and I got a couple. Okay. Uh, Greg wants to ask, David writes sci-fi that's based in the far future, the Honor series, uh, some that take place in the past, the 1632 series. How hard is it to switch back and forth from two disparate eras, and do you ever find yourself slipping a bit with crossover from one to the other? Not really. Um, I'm one of those people who can really only work on one book at a time. There are some people who can have like two or three it's kind of like cycling back and forth with the dragon. You know, it's got, I've got to completely unload one from memory and load the other one to, to work in it. Um, and Are that, you going to get two brains to be able to switch back and forth? The man with two brains? Yeah. I don't know. You know I, actually, my wife would say that first we have to get one. Uh, it's nice of you to heckle yourself for her in her absence. <laughs> so, so many years of practice. You know. Um, we, I really regret that she was not able to be here because uh, she will frequently re remind me of things that I'm you know, completely forgetting about. Plus, she'll give me a hard time. Um, but um, once I'm into the universe that I'm working in, it's like the others that I've done don't exist for me anymore until I finish with that one and come back out and look over here. Um, and <clears throat> continuity has never been the problem for me that it's been for a lot of other writers. I'm not saying that there aren't continuity errors in the Honorverse. I mean, my God, you know, I've been working on, I sold the first, I, first one in 1990, 1991. Um, actually, I sold the first two in 1991. Uh, Jim, Jim gave me a four-book contract as soon as he heard that it, I didn't realize 
when he asked, Jim Bain figured out that everything that I wrote spawned sequels. And he said, Dave, let's get a little organization into this. Why don't you, like, I don't know, plan a series? And I was like, yeah, but it's just sort of spontaneous this way. He said, yes, but I think if you planned a series, it would work better. So I pitched 10 series concepts to him. Uh, one of them became the Honorverse. One of them is what finally became Safehold with Tor. Uh, one of them is what became uh, the uh, the Hell's Gate. I think of it as the Multiverse series, which, by the way, Joel Presby and I are currently working on the third book in that series. Hopefully it will be out sometime next year. Um, anyway, so I pitched them. I did not realize that Jim had been looking for someone to do Horatio Hornblower in space for like 9,000 years. And he didn't, you know, he got as far as um, my heroine's name is, Horatio, is, is Honor Harrington, and she's sort of a female Hor, uh, Horatio Hornblower. He didn't read anything else on the His page. His eyes just lit up, I bet. He said, ah! He said, write him a contract for a book. No, make it two. Hell, make it four! Okay, and at that point in my career, a four-book contract was like stupamongous. Okay, now at the moment I have, I think, 24 contracts with Bain. Uh, this is known as employment security. Okay? Um, but, uh, so, I, so I jumped into to writing the, uh, the um, uh, Honor Harrington novels, and I wrote... Basilisk Station, which, by the way, is a reading title, not a pronouncing title, um, and Honor of the Queen is, is one contiguous storyline. Um, and I don't know if you've noticed, but in Basilisk, uh, the Havenites are referred to as Havenites. You know, there's, I think there's only like three references to the entire People's Republic of Haven in, in the first book. And there's about 12 or 13 in the second book. Well, what happened was, <laughs> I've written the books, I've sent them in, I get this phone call from, from New York, remember this is pre-internet, pre, you know, the cuneiform clay tablets have arrived in New York, you know, kind of thing. The monks um, have been called. Yes, they're quickly brothers to the scriptorium. Um, but, um, so, so Jim calls me up, and he says, I'm starting to read the first book, and, and I got a problem. And I'm like, okay, Jim, what's the problem? And he says, well, <sighs> manticores are man-eating monsters. And I said, uh-huh. He said, everybody who's seen Star Wars knows the Republic is the good guys. I said, uh-huh. And you called them the Republic of Haven, which is a safe place to go. And I said, uh-huh. He said, they're going to get confused, Dave. You know, and I'm like, no, no, they're not. It's going to be okay. You know, and he said, he said, but yeah, but the Republic of Haven. And I said, I said, Jim, the bad guys don't wake up one day and say, I know. Let's call ourselves the Omniveracity of Evil. <laughs> okay, and that's kind of the point here. They didn't start out being bad guys. They turned into bad guys. You know, et cetera. So he and I discussed this point for 45 minutes long distance from New York and by the time we got to the end I told him I said find me a mythological creature other than a centaur that didn't eat people if it could catch them and centaurs killed them if they could catch them I mean you know if we're going to go with this man you know so he's like oh okay I can live with it and he goes away 
And I say, okay, geez. Because this is like the first page where, where Sidney Harris and the company are talking about, you know, they're right, sitting there. introduction to the universe. Yeah, well, they're sitting there twirling their mustaches, more or less, you know, and thinking about what... It seems pretty obvious in those pages to me as a reader that they weren't on my side. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so I'm sitting there, and I get a phone call from New York. It's like 15 minutes later, okay? And he says, you made her ugly! I said, no, I didn't. He says, it says right here, you know, she's ugly. I said, no, it doesn't. It says she thinks she is. And he said, but that's the first introduction the reader's going to get, you know. And I said, I said, Jim. And he said, look, Bane heroines have to be such that men lust after them and women lust to be them. And I said, Jim, that may be the most sexist thing I've ever heard anybody say. And he says, sexist schmexist, it sells books, you know. <laughs> And so we go round and round and round for another 30 minutes. And I'm like, Jim, you know, go, you know, go to page six in the manuscript. <laughs> you know. and so he gets there, and, he, and it's where McKeon is thinking, you know, that the imagery doesn't do her, inner file doesn't do her justice, et cetera. And he says, yeah, but the damage is already done. So we move that scene forward like a page and a half. And he said, okay. And I hung up the phone, and I said, oh, my God. God, we've now, we are now seven pages into the manuscript, <laughs> and we spent an hour and a half on the phone. All right? This is going to take a while, you know. <laughs> Didn't hear another word from him. Okay, everything was good, you know. And the book was already into production, and it had already been typeset, and this is, again, this is in a period when you can't just snap your fingers in PageMaker and change everything. When I had an inspiration... And I called Jim, and I said, Jim, are you still upset about the Republic of Haven? And he said, I can live with it. And I said, well, I had a thought. And he said, what's that? And I said, we'll call it the People's Republic of Haven. And that will be a code word for bad republic. And he said, I like it. But the book had already been typeset, so we had to find places where we could stick it in without changing the line break. And the second book was already in production, and we had to look at it in five places where he could do it without changing the page break. And that's why the People's Republic of Haven really comes front and center in book number three. <laughs> well, and you as a linotype operator, like, you must have appreciated the challenge. There. Oh, yes. I'm saying we could do it in this paragraph, and we can do it over there, you know. Um, yeah, it was, it was interesting. Um, but, that, that, but that's one of the things that goes on in producing a book that the readers of the book frequently don't know anything about. Um, Shelley Fryer was an editor at Avon um, 25, 30 years ago. I have no idea what she's doing now. But while we were working on trying to get insurrection down, she said something to me that was very valuable. Uh, she said, you know everything that's in this book. And so you know where taking stuff out is going to weaken the story that you told. The reader will never know it was there. And therefore, they will be looking not at a story which is weakened from the one that you told, but at the strengths that it still retains. And this is a strong enough story that you can take that material out, and it will still work. Now, when Bain published the, um, the two... Um, uh, uh, 
mega books in hardcover that covered the entire series. In Insurrection, there's about 15,000, 20,000 words that were added to it to put back one of the strands that I most regretted having to cut out. And I think it does significantly strengthen the story. But if you didn't know it was there in the first place, you didn't miss it, and you didn't realize that it could have... How many of you have seen um, the, the, the outtakes from uh, Terminator 2? Okay, there's a, sequence, there's a sequence that gets cut out in, in, in the movie in which they reset the dip switch in the Terminator. Yeah, there's a sequence there where John says, you know, could you, like, learn to be less dorky? And he says, yes, there's a dip switch. Okay, well, the, the assumption in the movie you finally see is that the, the dip switch had been set for him to learn to be less dorky before he was sent back. In fact, no, it's not. And if you see the original scenes, Linda Hamilton's twin sister is used in a scene in which they open the Terminator's head and take out the dip switch to reset it. And as soon as uh, her character has it out, she puts it down on the top of a... They're in the garage. You remember where they pick all the bullets out of his jacket and everything after they break her out of the asylum? Um, And... She's, she puts it down on this, and she gets a hammer, and she's going to smash it. And her son is like, Mom, what are you doing? You know, uh, and he puts his hand out, and she just barely manages not to smash his hand. And he says, what are you doing? You don't understand. One of these things killed your father. We can't trust it, you know, kind of thing. And he's like, we need it to stay alive, you know. And she's like, no, John, you know, it's got to go, you know. And they go back and forth, back and forth. And then he says to her, if I'm this military genius who's supposed to save humanity, I think my mom should start listening to me. And he takes his hand away and he says, you do whatever you want. And she lifts the hammer about three times and starts to bring it down and then she stops and she stops and finally she throws the hammer down. And that's the point in the original screenplay and the original script where John becomes the leader of the group. And there's that whole sequence where the Terminator's watching the kids playing with the guns at the roadside diner on the way to Mexico, you know. And he's like looking over here and then he says, you are a strange species, you know, kind of thing. All of this is coming off of the fact that they reset the dip switch. And so does the Terminator's decision at the end that the last chip has to be destroyed. And he says to John, I understand now why you cry. Okay, All of that comes off of this scene that was cut. The reason it was cut is that it let them cut another 25 minutes of, of, to get the Terminator movie down to the length that it had to be. You didn't know it was there. And so the storyline works. But when you know it was there, all of a sudden there are whole layers to this storyline that you go like, oh, Okay. Another one was um, uh, the Wrath of Khan, the relationship between Savik and Scotty's nephew. He has a crush on her. She's his his mentor, uh, you know, and and everything else. When he dies, and she goes into the into the, the the lounge, and she rips the chair off the floor and throws it down, and then she goes and puts her Vulcan face on and walks back out. That's what that's all about. But because that scene was cut, you don't get the benefit of it. 
in a book, normally you can leave those scenes in. In a comic book, uh, this is the the uh, graphic novelization of the Honorverse by Evergreen, the folks who are making the movie. Um, you have to simplify. And in the movie, you have to decide how you're going to take uh, a 200,000-word 200 200, novel and make a two-hour movie out of it. Um, and so you get into whole layers of collaborative effort and, and who's involved and what can you take out, which characters can you combine. And that's one reason why so many uh, movie versions of books turn into bastardizations that the original readers don't like. The problem is that you, to make it work successfully, you have to combine characters but you have to choose the characters that you combine carefully. Okay. Um, what's the the movie? This Clint Eastwood movie, in which he's the 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 burglar who sees the president of the United States kill the wife of his like primary donor in a rough absolute power. Absolute. absolute yeah. I th- okay, I think so. I read the novel of that two weeks before I saw the movie, which is normally a really bad idea. Um, and I was wondering, okay, how the hell are they going to handle this movie when Clint Eastwood's character dies halfway through it? Well, he didn't. Okay. And yet, when I got to the end of the movie, I said, that was a good dramatization of the book. Because they were respectful of the elements in the book that made the, the plot work. And the characters that they combined, they combined successfully without leaving a hole in the DNA of the story when they turned it into a movie. There, there are certain limitations in the form, right, that, you're, that, that have to change. When you're in a movie, you can show things. In a yes. book, you have to describe them, right? Yes. But there's also, as we're evolving media, mm-hmm. some of the limitations, like, for instance, with Terminator 2, it can only be less than two hours. Those, yep. are, those are changing over yep. time. Some of them are changing because we're a society that will now watch television series like Game of Thrones mm-hmm. that would have been you know, very challenging to make a, as a movie. Yep. Uh, now that you are moving into so many different arenas, apps and comics and movies, yep. uh, w- w- do you find that some of these limitations you wish were going away faster and uh, other than the ones that are natural to the form? Are there some that frustrate you particularly? Okay. It's kind of fun, in a way, to look at the challenges of how you're going to do this. Now, my experience is being different from a lot of other people's experience because Evergreen, the studio that's doing this, the primary financial stakeholder is a self-described Honor Harrington fanboy geek. Um, That helps. That helps. Um, And he really wants to hang on to the politics and the, the, the structure. And he says, look, what you've done here is an opportunity to do genuine fleet combat in space, which nobody does, you know. And he says there's all kinds of group, you know, really cool stuff we can do here. Now, the strength is that he is really, really on board with maintaining true, you know, truth to the universe. The weakness is that this is their first uh, live-action production, cinematic production. And we are discovering some of the things we don't know that we don't know as we go along. 
my belief is that this project will work, will go, unless they are unable to get the number of screens they need in the distribution agreement that they have to have before they start production. There are some huge, huge strengths to going with Evergreen, uh, including the fact that they are probably one of the number two or three CGI outfits in the world right now in terms of what they can do. Uh, they have something called a prototyper, which is so cool. Um, once, you have, once they've scanned the actors... They can create any scene they want on the prototyper. They can walk the characters through. They can do the dialogue. They can adjust the lighting, the whole nine yards. Traditional movie making, about 60, 65% of the, of the production cost and time is involved in getting light values and blocking the scene and so forth. They can block every scene in the movie with a director and one tech sitting there, running it through the prototyper. And when they're done, for every single scene they've done, they've got 12 cameras, they've got all the angles, they know exactly where they have to be, and they've established the lighting values. That's incredibly okay. efficient. Yeah. And we're going like, and so my agent is like, is this proprietary? <laughs> they're showing the tech. And they said, oh yeah, and the only other two people who have it are Lucas and Cameron, and ours is five years younger than theirs, uh, theirs is with you know that head start in the technology. Uh, they have a piece of software where they have mapped all the muscles in the human face, okay? And they, can, they scan an actor in, and then they can do perfectly lip-synced dialogue for that character all digitally. And if they said, oh, we need to put a smile in there, and they put a smile, and they say, no, 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 remember the left side of her mouth doesn't work right, okay? And so that side doesn't come up. I mean, they can do that stuff, all right? And, and it's like, oh, wow, man. And of course, they did inform me that the Honorverse is going paperless. And I said, really? Well, you have to understand that Mike, the, the guy who is the, the, uh, the, the Mike Devlin, um, he and one of his buddies went into the Air Force together, and then they got into computers and so forth, and they, they had this little company that they put together, Reliant Technology or something like that, and when they were bought out, they had to settle for a measly $2.7 billion, uh, so it's kind of like, yeah, he, can, he, can, you know, he likes tech toys, um, and, but the problem for me, the biggest problem right now is the degree to which you need to visualize who these people are going to be. The established fan base is like, we know what they're supposed to look like because we've seen uniform plates. And Hollywood is like, yeah, but... And the first guy that they had uh, doing the, uh, the creative imagery for it had read Basilisk Station, none of the others. And he was thinking, let's see, British sailing navy, yes. And so he had like 16th century frock coats crossed with anime that he was doing, and that eventually evolved into the uniforms that you're going to see in, in the first few issues here. And I told Evergreen, I said, ooh, the fans aren't going to like this. And they said, well, you know, we have to do this. And they started sharing graphic information with the fans. The fans were, what the hell is this? <laughs> you know, kind of, and one of the smart things about Evergreen is they really want to involve the existing fan base in the... In, in building the movie and building viewership for the movie. And so they want input. And unlike my, on my website, there's actually an evergreen forum 
where you can talk directly to them and they will occasionally release stuff, you know, and tell you about it. And they, they kind of said, we're sorry about the uniform thing. We're working on it. <laughs> and they've been, they have been working on something that comes well, a lot closer. It makes such a difference to fans when they feel like, okay, we're being listened to. Even if we don't get our way, we now have had a dialogue. I, well, I told Evergreen, I said, look, when you guys start communicating with them, you need to not communicate with them as Evergreen in a response to, to specific queries. You need to, to look at everything that is said and then respond to all of them rather than getting into an argument with somebody who has a specific thing that seems really, really critical to him. I said the other thing is if you're not going to do it the way they're suggesting, explain to them why you aren't. Okay, and so for example, they may not always agree with you, but one thing they said is, okay, the honor ships aren't going to look exactly the way they look in the in the in the books, and they're you know you have their engineering reasons and constraints why they look that way in the books, and we understand that, but we think that the audience has to know which is the front end of the ship. To which my response is, well, front end of the ship depends on whether you're accelerating or decelerating. Uh, but, I, you know, but you can see the point that they're making. You know, so the Honorverse fans know all this stuff in great detail, but if a grandmother is bringing her children to it, they have to be able, and, they're like, and we want the ships to be visually distinguishable from one another so people won't think that, well, that's a Havenite ship, I think. And so my initial response was, that's what smart paint is for. You know, <laughs> the Havenite ships are gray, you know, whatever. But they want, uh, at this point, we're looking at a distinctive architecture. And I said, well, I think the fans will be okay with that as long as the constraints that you follow in building the ships hew to the constraints in the books so that you don't, like, put the impeller ring inside on one ship. You know, the propellers on the aircraft carrier have to go in the same place no matter whose aircraft carrier it is. And they're working with us on that. They're working also with um, BU-9, uh, the folks who did uh, the Honorverse Companion uh, and so forth. Um, and I don't expect them to get it all right. I really don't. Um, but what I'm hoping for is I have not met a single hardcore Tolkien fan, which includes me, who can't rattle off 17 things that Jackson did wrong with the Lord of the Rings. Okay, I haven't found one person. You're getting who, cheers now. Yeah, okay. But you got to the end of it and you said, I, you know, they made Faramir a wimp. You know, wait, 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 wait. Why is Pippin tricking Fangorn into going and seeing where these trees were cut down? My God, they killed Saruman in the second book. You know, all this stuff. And we didn't do the cleansing of the Shire because it was anticlimactic. Not this was the whole point of the book for Tolkien is that we're all grown up now. We can do this on our own. You know, oh man, you know, bitch, 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 bitch. And you get to the end and say, but God, what a ride. Okay. If they do that with the Honorverse, I will be happy. Okay. Even though I will say, yeah, man, I really wish we could have done more with Rafe Cardones or Andreas Venizelos or something like that. Um, there are critical scenes that I think need to be there. And the thing, the good news is that, for example, they're sending me the proposed text for the comic books before they comment to Top Cow, the company that's actually doing it. Now, 
the production cycle on comic books is such that I frequently don't have very long to respond. They sent me issue number two while I was in um, Quebec <laughs> and said, we know this is short notice, but we just got it today, and Top Cow needs it back by 6 p.m. our time today. Could you do this for us? And I'm like, I'm at a con in Canada, and I got it done. Uh, but in the, at that point, on that one, they didn't have the art to show me along with it. And so you're shooting blind on some of it. And so there are some, uh, some, some uh, points in this second issue where I'm like, hmm, boy, if I'd had more time to think about it, I would have recommended doing something differently. But they're seeking my input, okay? They were, originally, they were bound to determine they were going to start with Basilisk Station. And I love Basilisk Station, but I'm not sure that it's the best book to begin the movies with. And so I suggested to them that. And they said, well, what we're thinking now is that we would combine Ms. Midshipwoman Harrington, Let's Dance, Basilisk Station, and Honor the Queen in one movie. <laughs> I said, bad idea. <laughs> and they said, you think too much? I said, Probably. So what I suggested that they do is we start with Honor the Queen, and they run the initial very brief credits, you know, produced, you know, studio, Evergreen Studio release, blah, blah, and then the screen goes completely black. And it stays that way, and it's completely silent, just long enough for you to realize they did it on purpose. And then you jump straight into the final battle against Sirius from Basilisk Station. You got missiles flying, explosions, you, you, you kaleidoscope events. You've got Honor saying, Mr. McKeon, get below, take over damage control. Dominica blows the power room. You got a sequence with, with Horace, you know, moving the missiles through the passageways, you know, and then this huge explosion, okay? And then Honor sits up in bed. And she goes into the head, and she's splashing water. She walks by her dress uniform laid out on a chair. She goes in, she's splashing water on her face, and you run the, the, the rest of the credits while she's getting dressed in her uniform. She leaves her cabin and walks straight into the cocktail party before the departure for uh, Yeltsin Star, and you're off and running, and you don't know who all these people are, but when you see them again, you know they've already been to hell and back with her. And when you start hearing the Havenite saying, well, she's a mass murderer, she did this, you see the ship she was up against and the way her ship had been beaten into scrap, you know, kind of thing. And so they said, okay, that sounds good to us. And I'm like, okay. And, but then they're like, yeah, Nimitz is not going to ride on on her shoulder very much in the movie. And I'm like, why not? That's... And not okay. Well, actually, they gave me a reason that makes a lot of sense. Okay. She said, okay, in the books, you find out about Nimitz and everything there is about him almost as slowly as you find out everything about Honor. You think at the end of the first book you know who she is. By the end of the second book, you're sure you know who she is. In the third book, you find out about how she reacted to what happened at the Academy, and now there's Paul Tankersley, and oh my God, what do I do? Okay, and you begin to realize that no, you didn't really know her thoroughly. I did that on purpose, because I knew that she would grow and change due to events in the series, but I also knew that that wasn't going to be hugely pronounced in the first few books. So what I was doing was peeling layers of her established character, which was character growth as far as the readers were concerned. And I was doing the same thing with Nimitz. Okay, and she said, 
we need to establish from as soon as we meet Nimitz that he is not an appendage, that he's not a pet, because once that gets fixed in the viewer's minds, it's going to be very difficult to change. And we are afraid that if she, he rides on her shoulder, it's going to be like the captain's parrot, our hearties, you know, kind of thing. Um, and they said, and we really need to figure out how we're going to establish this relationship. And I said, okay. You go, you run the release by studios, you know, and you, you, the ship blows up, Honor sits up in bed, and Nimitz hops up on the bed, and he reaches out and he puts a true hand on the side of her face, and she looks at him, and she, he says, she says, sorry about that, and he kind of, you know, she says, she says uh, I'm, I'm sorry to, you know, keep dragging you into that, you know, and he kind of goes, hmm, and she says, but at least they're getting better, and he goes, <laughs> That's, and she says, she says, well, okay, they're getting less frequent. And he goes, and then she goes into the head and she's getting dressed and he's handing her stuff while she's, while she's getting dressed and whatnot so that when she goes out to the party and he goes, you've established that there's some link here, there's some reason he's getting pulled into it with her, you know, the whole nine yards. And again, you're kind of off to the races. And they said, you should write for a living. <laughs> you really should. Yeah. It's a great you know. idea. But the fact that they are talking to me about it on that kind of a level and that we're discussing ideas and concepts, it's not guaranteed they're going to do it that way. Okay? But that's the kind of conversations we're having at this point, and that's one reason why at this point I feel very optimistic about where this project is going to go if it comes to fruition. We've got about, uh, I think it's like 15 minutes left uh, or so. Is that right? Uh, so I want to take a couple of questions from folks in the audience here. Now, David P. on, on the Sword and Laser uh, forum did have a quick question. He wanted to know how many books to expect in the Safe Hold series. Um, I'm working on what I believe is book eight. I'd have to go back and count to be sure. There will be this one and one more will wind up the war against the group of four. And then there will be a 20-year or so hiatus on safe hold um, while technology kind of changes and morphs and whatnot. And then they're going to have to deal with telling the truth about the archangels and so forth, which is going to kick off another war, which will be even nastier in some ways, but probably shorter, because it will be fought with what is basically World War I-era technology, um, but with more advanced concepts of how to employ it than they had in 1914. Um, whether or not I will actually deal with going after the Gibaba is uncertain at this time because I'll be 62 in October. And if I do a book a year, we're talking one more to clear out the, game of four, the, the gang of four. And then we're probably talking three to four to do the second war. So you're four or five years further along and you know whether I don't want to get into doing the war against the Gibaba unless I have the time to do it right. Okay, so what could happen is if I've decided when I get to the end of you know the 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 big reveal and we take care of the bombardment platform and whatever is under the temple and all that other stuff, you might have an epilogue because remember how I've been dating it, and it could be you know. Um, uh, 
uh, the 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 uh, Terran Federation of Cheris, you know, and it's it's year four hundred three, uh, you know, of the Empire, uh, and you see the fleet getting ready to depart to go, you know, pound the Gibaba flat, and you've got these, you know hundreds of thousands of ships, you know, ready to go, etc. And you still may have Merlin as the flag captain, okay, of the of the flagship kind of I did do a uh, how the safe hold series won't end uh on davidweber.net if you go and look for it in which I some people drop in from other David Weber universes at the, at the critical moment. Uh, I just thought I'd mention that. And then, oh, that sounds yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, what's, our, what's your question, sir? Can you talk a little bit about how you develop um, the scenes that you're putting in your story in, as part of your writing process? And as part of that, and like the one that comes to example is, I would assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you figured out your primary plot scenes before you start writing. But for the scenes that provide the color and context, for example, out of the Honor Harrington series, where Elvis Santino fires one for the flag and Andrea Jarawalski gets sent home in disgrace. At what point in your process did those kinds of scenes come into process? Before I started on the Honor Harrington stories, I wrote an 80,000-word essay on the Honorverse. Uh, that was politics, star nations, technology, the whole nine yards. And I had a plan for the series... And that was really all I had. I had no special scenes that I had decided I was going to do, and I just started telling the story. And it developed from there. And I really prefer writing that way. Um, in the early days, especially when I wrote that way, it helped pull me through because I had to find out how the story ended. Okay? And, it, and seriously, that's, that's a factor for a professional writer, is what's going to pull you through telling this story. Is it the joy you take out of working with these characters, or is it, i got to find out what happens. Um, now, as the canvas got bigger, and especially here recently when I've had the Talbot Quadrant stories going over here, which are every, much, every bit as much a part of the main story arc as anything that has honor in it, but in those cases, I had to start working with a much more detailed timeline because I have to allow for transit times and that kind of thing. And that, in a way, kind of turns into a plot point outline because I have to figure out ahead of time when the information is going to get there and so forth. The scenes themselves create themselves when I get there. Um, and um, sometimes I surprise myself with where I'm going. Um, I couldn't figure out for a long time why Andrew LaFollette had to die. I tried to rewrite that book without killing Andrew four times, and it wouldn't work. Wouldn't work, wouldn't work, wouldn't work. And it wasn't until I turned the manuscript in that I realized why that was. Honor loses essentially her entire family, except for her mom, her dad, the twins, and her two children with Hamish and Emily, gone. There are like six other survivors of the entire Harrington clan. And she's absolutely devastated by it. But you never met most of them. You have met Andrew. 
you've been invested in Andrew. You've known how much he means to her and how much she means to him. And so when she loses him with that same abrupt, oh my God, that she lost her family with, you can extrapolate from what you're feeling and what you're seeing and understanding her feel in that moment to, oh my God, how much worse must it be to realize that she's lost all of her family as well. And that was why I couldn't not kill Andrew as hard as I tried. Does that help? question over here. Yeah. I, um, I started with In Enemy Hands was the, was the first Harrington book that I, I read. And it was interesting going back from there. Of course, I had to go down and buy all of the ones prior to that. And then I read them in order from, from there on. It was interesting going from in enemy hands to Bascala Station and seeing how the characters that I'd gotten to used to in enemy hands developed. Mm-hmm. And I think by doing that, it, it gave me a, an, in, an interesting point in there. Mm-hmm. Well, the bottom line is that I, I like to build universes, but I like to build characters even more. Somebody asked me one time, they said, you know, how do you write a believable female captain? Because you don't really look very much like honor, you know, kind of thing. And I told him, I said, I don't. I write a believable human being who happens to be female. Okay? And there's a difference there. There's a big difference there. Um, and if you don't care about the characters, if they, if they don't seem real and plausible to you, okay, now you don't have to like them. You can... Read Game of Thrones, okay? <laughs> you know, but, but you have to care. And if you're, what you care about is, boy, I can hardly wait to see this SOB get his. That's caring, okay? But the characters have to be real enough to you that you invest that emotion in caring about them, or the story's meaningless. And so, yeah, I love the hardware, and I love the politics, and I love all of this, but all of that is really the framework and the support structure for the people in the stories. And it's the people who fascinate me. I've loved history since I was in the fifth grade, you know, the whole nine yards. But the final analysis, it's the people who interest me and who they are and what they are and what they believe and what they're trying to accomplish. And... I'm perfectly okay with people who describe the Honor Harrington books as, as space opera. It can be good or it can be bad. But whatever the, the, the genre that you're writing in, you've got to have people in it that people care about. That's what makes Shakespeare live. And one of the reasons he's still around today. Um, and people should remember that Shakespeare was the space opera of his day and that very few people are reading Pilgrim's Progress for fun anymore. Uh, So, you know, there's something to be said for popular entertainment being the entertainment that actually has legs in the end. 
uh, Dickens, uh, Twain, some of the other folks who are actually still read, not just because your lit teacher said you had to read them. They have to be able to speak to some of that universal human condition that we can, that we can relate to, that we can hang our hats on uh, when, when we deal with it. Um, and to my money, people have asked me, they said, you know, why do people like Honor Harrington so much? And my, I believe that what they like the most in Honor Harrington is that she is a responsibility taker. She looks at a problem and she doesn't say, it's not my fault, I didn't do it. She doesn't throw her hands up and say, well, I did the best I could. She doesn't say, well, it's, you know, I'm not a politician, I'm a whatever. She looks at a problem and if she can solve it, it's her job to solve it as far as she's concerned. And that, I think, is probably what resonates most strongly from Honor Harrington with the people who read and who, and who like the books. Um, because that's who we'd like to be. That's who we'd like our leaders to be. And we get enough evidence of people with feet of clay in real life. All right? And I really think that's one reason why the books work. Uh, now, you know, Honor, and I do have this problem with people say, well, Honor's too perfect. She never makes mistakes. I'm like, for God's sake, she shot a prisoner without trial. She missed, but she shot him right in the head if somebody hadn't moved her arm. You know, there are quite a few things that Honor has done that were less than optimal. That's why I finally had the scene where Michelle Hinky uh, dissects her tactics at Cerberus and winds up with, in short, if it was not the most ill-conceived, high-risk plan in the history of warfare, I've so far failed to determine what was, okay? Because Mike's entirely correct. Barry says, well, it was Honor Harrington. She must have been brilliant and, you know, all the rest of this. And she knew what she was doing the whole time. And what it really came down to was Honor simply could not leave a quarter million people on that planet because they relied on her, and she was willing to risk killing her entire fleet to not do that. And there was only one possible way to do it, so she rolled the dice and went for it. Okay? Now, I'm sorry. You know, that's what, you know, your, your, your hero and so forth needs to do, but a stead holder and an admiral who has all these responsibilities, the guy who wanted to send the ship home was right and she wouldn't listen to it because she knew they'd have put her on a ship and made her leave, and she wouldn't go in anywhere without the people who had trusted her on the planet. When when uh, La Follette is is goes down in the in the breakout attempt, okay, and it's like all of her staff officers, two of her armsmen have died to get her out. She knows they're waiting in the boat bay, and she knows Alistair McKeon is not going to punch out in those shuttles until she gets there. And he goes down, and there's this crossfire and everything, and if she dies, all of this is for nothing. Nobody's getting out. And does she press the button and go? No, she runs out into the crossfire, grabs La Follette, drags him in, damn near gets killed. Everybody's going, yay, rah, she did the right thing. Okay, as a human being, she did the right thing. <laughs> okay, as a stead holder in admiral, no, not so much. <laughs> but but because, you, because you understand why she did it, because you know who she is and everything else, people say, no, that, that wasn't a mistake. And I'm like, <laughs> Yes, it was. Um, 
But you know, and, and the other problem is that smart, competent people make smart, competent mistakes. They don't make stupid mistakes. Um, but anyway. Well, I wish we could take a lot more questions, but uh, David is one of the most accessible authors I've ever met. Uh, if you can't talk to him here at the con, or if you listen to the podcast of, of this later, uh, what's the best way for, for people to reach out? I know you love hearing feedback. Uh, I do. Um, I don't have... I, I, DavidWeber.net is where I hang out mostly uh, in the forums these days. Um, and I'm not there as much as I'd like to be because as soon as I start getting involved, I start writing 5,000-word posts. I don't know why people And those think don't count towards the million and a half. They don't count towards yeah. the million and a half. I actually I'd, <laughs> I did a post the other day, and it was fairly short and succinct. And Michael Everett, who is a fan from England, said, My God, it's a short David Weber post, less than 250 words. And so I posted... I, I, I posted three replies. Michael, that's silly. You know, and, and, and well went my way, you know. But. Uh, so davidweber.net David is the Weber. place to go. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest of honor, David Weber. Thank you so much. Thank you.